Christians are people of Christ and people of the Word, the Word of God. We're called to gather together for worship and to sit, as you are now, under the preaching of that Word. And there, there is to be a priority of preaching in the local church. So it makes sense that a primary qualification of an elder, especially a preaching elder, would be that he is a good preacher. Uh, as in, if down the road you are considering, you know, hopefully a long time down the road, considering between two men as a replacement for me, and one of them was clearly, clearly a better preacher than the other, he would be the natural choice, right? But is that really a biblical way of considering the office? When we... While there must be a priority given to preaching in the gathering of the local church, is it really the primary pastoral priority? Is preaching really the primary pastoral priority? I remember one of my seminary professors phrasing this very differently. He said that he was far less concerned with a man's preaching skill than he was with his character. He may have even said it stronger, if I remember correctly, it was something like, I don't care if he can preach well or not, as long as he is a godly man. And however he phrased it, however he was trying, what the point that he was trying to get across, I remember kind of balking at it. After all, a pastor is a preacher called to feed God's people with God's word, right? But what is the primary pastoral priority? In our journey through 1 Timothy, we've already considered a long list of qualifications for elders, noting that only one of them was, quote, able to teach, while the rest had to do with his character, his reputation uh, in the church and at home and out in the world. You see, the most gifted of preachers, if he is not above reproach, is disqualified from the office. The same cannot be said of a man who is above reproach, but is not as captivating or creative behind the pulpit as whoever your favorite preacher might be. See, a lack of pulpit skill does not disqualify him from pastoral or elder ministry. But poor character does disqualify In our passage this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, Paul is giving personal instructions to Timothy. Uh, there have only been a few direct imperatives. Like this is the thing, these are the things that are supposed to take place in the church. But then as he moves into chapter four, starting with this section, there's a huge uptick in kind of those second person imperatives, right? Timothy, you, 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 this is, needs to be true of you. This is what you need to do. This is, the, this is the behavior. These are the things that need to take place. Very, very personal letter, and this, we've moved into a very personal section of that letter. But Paul is providing instructions to Timothy and providing a pastoral priority for elders and members to consider carefully. There's a sense in which all Christians are to follow this themselves, like when we talked about the elder qualifications, it wasn't like, well, if you're not an elder or not going to be considered as an elder, you get to check out this week. If you're not a deacon, check out this week, right? Like Keith mentioned, and I talked about with those qualifications, there's a sense in which this is just what godliness looks like. So there's a sense with this command, although given specifically to Timothy in a, in a sense of a primary pastoral priority, which I wonder if that, there's a lot of p- it's popping every time on the mic. I didn't think about that. He's giving this primary pastoral priority for elders and members to consider carefully uh, as they consider elders, but also as as you consider yourself. So it's not like, well, I'm not an elder, so 
this doesn't matter to me. That's not how we approach God's word. So there's a sense in which all Christians are to follow these instructions themselves. There's a sense in which elders are called to a greater responsibility to uphold or fulfill this priority. The priority is found in the middle of our passage. We'll see it in verse 8, where it says godliness, right? Train yourself for godliness. Verse 7, excuse me. Rather, train yourself for godliness or train to be godly. Let's read the passage. 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Train to be godly. Training in godliness. Raises an interesting question. We have to start here, right? What is godliness? Only a common enough term uh, in Christian lingo, biblical terminology, but what exactly does it mean? It can be easy when you think of godliness to think of behavior and jump right to externals, but that would be a mistake. While godliness will manifest itself externally, it begins and primarily exists internally because godliness is a heart of reverent love for God a heart of reverent love for God. It's godliness is the fulfillment of the first and greatest commandment, which is love the Lord, your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Everything about you needs to be Godward in its focus and not just in a road obedience, but in love, reverent love for God. This love transforms us. It starts inside. It doesn't stay inside. It transforms us as God transforms us. And it results in conformity to his character. So as we gaze on the Lord and as we love him, we are changed into his image. Godliness starts inside. It doesn't stay inside. As Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We love God with all our heart and then demonstrate that by loving those created in God's image, otherwise known as our neighbors, those around us. Starts though internally. Don't just tack fruit on the tree. It has to be transformed. Our hearts are transformed. Our hearts are transformed to be godly, reverent love for God. One one author said, the godly among us, talked about this last week, right? What's, what does it look like, a, a holy or a godly person, right? We might think it's like, oh, the one who's removed, right? One who's praying all the, oh, no, don't, don't talk to him. He's praying. He's, too, he's so godly. He's so holy. He's detached. He starves himself and keeps away from other people, right? We talked about that, and we said, well, is that what Jesus was like? So the godly person, which we, last week it was those who gratefully enjoy God's good gifts. The godly among us, this author said, 
are those whose reverent worship of God flows into obedience throughout the week. Flowing out of our discussion last week, godliness is not pursued through asceticism. Don't, 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 don't. We'd be like, well, that, that would inevitably make me more godly. And Paul says, actually, it won't. That's the other ditch. That's last week's sermon, though, so I'm not going to re-preach that. But godliness would express itself by gratefully enjoying God's good gifts. Point of last week's sermon. But that's easier said than done. It's easy to enjoy God's good gifts or enjoy the gifts, but how do we do that gratefully as in with a Godward perspective? See, that's the difficult part. Enjoying good food or good drink or rest or work or family or fun, laughter, stories, beauty, that's actually fairly easy, but doing it gratefully as in this is from God and points and draws me closer to God, that requires transformation. How do we make sure that we are enjoying with gratitude to God and not just enjoying selfishly or worse, worshiping the gift rather than the giver? This is why we need to pursue godliness. It's not just something, just as you can't make yourself godly by saying no to something, you're not going to make yourself godly just by eating and drinking and resting and working, right? So we need to pursue godliness. We need to grow in reverent love for God. And that's Paul's goal in this passage. Asking ourselves, how do we pursue this? There are a few commands in this passage, but I think the central one is, as I mentioned in verse 7, rather train yourself for godliness or train yourself to be godly, which raises the next question, which is, how do we train to be godly? Godliness, reverent love for God. It's not going to happen automatically, so we need to pursue it. So how do we pursue it? And he gives a number of things, kind of, I'm, I'm mixing aspects of it to try to center around that command, but I think it all sort of ties itself back into that one particular command. How do we train ourselves to be godly? How do we train to be godly? And the first aspect that he talks about here, he's, he's saying in verse 6, he talks about that Timothy has followed good doctrine. Kind of, as I said, I'm going to mix things around. You'll see all the different phrases in the text if you're following along. We train ourselves to be godly first by following good doctrine. Do you remember the call that Jesus extended to his different disciples, Peter, James, John? I just like it in that order because my name is Peter James. So you got to say it that way. Don't do this Peter, John, and James stuff. Never mind. What did he say to them? He said, come what? Come follow me. This was more than just an invitation to travel where he traveled and observe from a distance. They were to be his direct disciples, to learn from his teaching and his life, to have a close relationship with him, to experience his ministry firsthand. That's more than just tag along, right? Come and be with me. Learn of me. Be devoted to me. And this fuller sense of following is what Paul is communicating to Timothy about his relationship to or with good doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine means teaching. Doctrine means instruction. We can relate it to the teachings of our faith found in Scripture. Basic things. All levels of it. We start off with who is God? Right? Who are we? Who is Christ? 
What did he accomplish on the cross? See, these basic type questions are, are doctrinal teaching questions, questions that are answered in God's word. Paul said in chapter one, as he addressed different aspects of doctrine, the answers to those questions, when we think of what does Christianity teach, what is the instruction that is given, not every answer is correct. And not everybody who says that they're a Christian preacher is saying the truth about those things. But we look to the word and Paul says, you know, there is sound doctrine. There's healthy doctrine. There's biblical doctrine. And if there is sound, healthy, good doctrine, then there's also unsound, unhealthy, bad, blasphemous teaching or instruction that sometimes masquerades itself as Christianity. And false teachers, as we've seen, are, are, were a problem already in Ephesus this early in the history of the church. What we teach, what we believe, down to the details, these things matter. Don't follow good doctrine like our dog, Pepper, easily distracted and prone to wandering off the path. Follow good doctrine like a trained hound, sniffing it out, pursuing it eagerly. We must follow good doctrine if we are to grow in godliness, if we are to grow in our reverent love for God, because we can't love a God that we don't know. You can't. Can't love a person that you don't grow to know. I could give a random name of somebody that you've never met and command you to love this person. You'd be like, oh, gladly. So who are they? What, what's, how do I love? How do I help them? How do I love them? What does this look like? Right? But just be like, love this thing that you have no information about at all. It's like, I, I can't. Do I have interaction with them? Like, what's, what's going on? You can't love a God that we don't know. You can't love a God that you know wrongly. He won't receive that love. It isn't love. Like I mentioned before, if you're like, oh, I love Leanne, so lovely, and somebody's like, oh, we'll describe her. It's kind of like, wow, it's really short, really wide, uh, really, really dark hair. Be like, who are you describing? Because it's not what your wife looks like. Like, oh, it doesn't matter what she's like. I just love her. Like, you're in trouble. Big trouble. Better figure something out. Here's the, here's the other aspect of that, though. You don't have to know God perfectly in order to love him. But what you know about him needs to be true. I think that makes sense. We are always growing in our love for friends and family, spouses and children, growing in our love for God. But what we know, don't need to know perfectly, but we do need to know accurately. And when it comes to God, it needs to be accurate according to his word. We're following good doctrine if we're training to be godly. But we're also, he uses another idea of nourishment. That's sort of our second point. How do we train to be godly? We need to be nourished in the words of the faith and good doctrine. If you have an ESV, you're like, it doesn't say nourished. Well, it says trained, but like every other translation has, has nourished. And when we read trained here and then read trained later, it might be like, oh, this is the same thing. It's actually different words, and I just, I'm normally not trying to pick and choose among translations or comparing aspects of that, but I really think that those others get closer to the point. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament, so it's kind of hard to, th this training is not like the exercise training that's talking about later. Even if it is trained, it has to do with a, a growing up into something. And so when we think about a child growing up in something, we can think of like a nourishment happening. When I think of nourishment, I think of food. And that's not hard, because I often think about food. 
the food that we eat is important to our physical health, right? Just kind of like soda's not really good for you, neither are French fries. I'm not really like dropping huge bombs of truth here about diet. I remember when Leanne was pregnant with Juliet, I recognized I was at an unhealthy weight. I was on an unhealthy trajectory to gain more weight. And I was also mid-20s and knew that that was a really good time to try to do something about that. So I committed to running three times a week on a couch to 5K plan. It's in from you're a lazy slob to get moving. <laughs> but they, they, made it, they made it sound a little bit nicer. So six weeks later, I was close to my goal of being able to run 3.1 miles without a break. And every morning as I got on the scale, it never moved. Six weeks of running, three times a week, I never lost a single pound. That is not encouraging. My food intake more than made up for the couple hundred calories I burned on those morning runs. And when I recognized this six weeks or so in, and I changed my diet, I lost at least 30 pounds over the next three months. Like I couldn't keep the weight on when I made that change. Why do I share this story? Our diet is important to the success of our training. And what are we talking about? We're talking about training to be godly. And our food intake, our nourishment is important on that. I read a book recently called The Wisdom Pyramid. I highly recommend it to you. Uh, the author's premise is that our intake of information is like our intake of food. Feeding ourselves spiritually, mentally, there are comparisons to feeding ourselves physically. And he starts off by saying, if you eat too much food, you eat junk, garbage food all the time, and you eat it too quickly, you're going to feel the effects of that, unless you're probably like a 15, 16-year-old teenage boy. They're sort of exempt from that. It catches up later. His point is that if we take in too much information, we take in garbage information, unnecessary, junk, a whole lot of definitions of that, taking the wrong kind of information, and we try to scarf it down without time for digestion. This is the practice in our lives, and yet we wonder why mentally, emotionally, and spiritually we feel sick. His solution to this is a balanced diet of, and you, maybe you can see the pyramid. I don't know if you can necessarily make out the aspects of it, but he starts off with a foundation. Remember the food pyramid? Everybody remembers that, right? So at the bottom of the, food of the wisdom pyramid is the Bible. Do we have a steady diet built primarily on our spiritual, mental intake? God's word. Next up is the church, gathering of God's people. Above that, he has uh, nature, creation, being outside and observing stars. David saw the glory of God revealed in that. Do you spend time looking at trees, understanding, like we talked about with Jesus last week, how he saw lessons in flowers and birds and all sorts of different aspects of that. So the Bible and then church, nature, he has books there as well. And then he, he categorizes beauty, music, and art. And sometimes he brings that along with nature, kind of lumping beauty together. Then at the top, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of sugar you're supposed to have, is social media, the internet. And he's saying that most of our culture has flipped that onto its head. Huge intake of a variety of different social media things. And then, oh man, I, you know, I didn't really have time for God's word today. So we first have the issue of what are you taking in for spiritual nourishment as you're training to be godly? And that's a good question. But even if you are taking in truth, there's a second question. And it's a significant struggle for me. The question is, are you actually being nourished by that truth? Sure, it's good to replace 
garbage intake with good quality, but are you scarfing that down or are you ever allowing it to sit and settle? Are you actually digesting the truth that you have received? Are you allowing it time to digest? Are you meditating on the truth of God's word? Thinking about, thinking about it. What, what is it that I read? How does it apply? What, what does this say about God, about me, about Christ, about the world that I live in? Are you considering how it applies to your life? What, what needs to change? What, what do I need to obey? What, what have I seen the Spirit do in my life as reflected in this text already? What can I give praise for? How can I prayerfully ask God to change me according to his word? I think the opposite of this nourishing would be found in James 1. I'm sure that's a passage that you are familiar with. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like in one ear and out the other. Is this you? Are you stuffing yourself, maybe even with truth, are you stuffing yourself or are you digesting it? Are you being nourished and fed? Are you being changed? And then I'll just put it before you. Please pray for me. I'm privileged of being in God's word all week um, and supported by you to do so. But pray for me that as I study God's word, to preach it to you each week, that I would not neglect being nourished by God's word myself. And be like, that's a struggle for preachers? Yes. At least it is for this preacher. And the more preachers that I talk to, the more I know it just can become a task. And you can look at God's word and be like, well, this is what they need, and this is what they need, and this is what they need. And it needs to be really good and it's just a task to check off. So pray for me that I would be trained in godliness, nourished in God's word. See, I can't feed you well if I'm starving myself. And it's a constant struggle that I, I face as a preacher. So I covet your prayers on that. Paul has stated positively about nourishment and, and following, uh, being trained or nourished in the words of the faith. And then he's, he then kind of says the same idea, but stating it negatively. See, we say yes to the words of faith and good doctrine, but we say no to something else on top of that, right? Just like every, area, every other area of our life, when you're saying yes to something, you're saying no to something else. So he says, have nothing to do, verse seven, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, the NIV puts this in a great way too. Godless myths and old wives' tales. Just because there's information that exists doesn't mean that it's actually helpful or that it's actually true, that it's worth following. Not everything is good to eat. Not everything is good to intake spiritually. Chapter one, Paul called on Timothy to confront the false teachers who had devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And there are endless other things to be distracted by in our training for godliness. And we must reject these distractions. We must avoid them at all costs. See, all sorts of crazy things masquerade as spiritually beneficial. If they don't come from God's word, then they are to be rejected. We all know we don't have enough time, right? Which isn't true. 
So we have enough time as given to us by God for the tasks that have also been given to us by God. But we don't feel like we have enough time. But yet how much time do we have for so many other things? Do we have time for truth? There are things that need to be rejected. It's the things that are, are useless, that are not beneficial to us. Have nothing to do with these things, Paul says. His next point is an illustration, a comparison between two types of training. And training to be godly is like bodily training or like physical exercise. You know, the word training is actually where we get the term gymnasium a place where athletes would work out and train for competition. Already this morning, I've mentioned some comparisons between bodily training and godly, godliness training. But Paul wants to kind of focus on, com- on a contrast between the two of these things instead. So take, take a moment. We've all watched specials on this. Maybe not all of us. Many of us have watched different specials. You're about to watch the Olympic race or something like that, and they do that short little bio of this person, and uh, you know, he exercised 27 hours a day and slept two hours and consumed as many calories as I want to, but yet he still looks like he's a statue carved by Michelangelo. It's like, oh, man, I just want to be able to eat that much and look like that without having to work at all. Think about how hard true athletes work at their sport. Think about the hours of hard work, not just over a day or over a week, but over years, maybe over decades. Think of the regimented schedules and the focus, the exertion, the careful nutrition intake. And all of that is for a few minutes of fame. In the first century, a crown made of leaves. In the 21st century, a medal made of gold or silver or bronze. A couple minutes on the pedestal until it just cuts to a commercial and moves on to the next event. Paul recognizes bodily training is of some value. It's better than laziness. It's, our physical health is important. We enjoy God. We gratefully enjoy God's good gifts, and exercise is one of those good gifts, and health is one of those good gifts. All of that benefit is temporary. I mean, consider those whose health by, by God has been taken from them, and yet still trained toward godliness. Think of those born never able to do that. It's just like, well, it's like, well, sorry. No, there's still the pursuit of godliness. There's still training to be godly, which doesn't just have a temporary benefit, doesn't just have temporary uh, glory. Physical exercise, bodily training only impacts this life, which doesn't mean it needs to be rejected. It has some value, but here's the contrast. Training to be godly is of eternal significance. It is, we see it, it is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Okay, so don't miss that. It's not like don't do things that are only valuable impact your life now because training in godliness doesn't impact you now. It only impacts you then, but that's not what he says. Bodily training has this value now. Godliness has both value now and for the life to come, right? Because our life with Christ to the joy and the, the blessings, the experience of being with Christ is not something that is just future. It's not just there will be joy. There is joy that will continue forever, There are trials now. We will be delivered from those. But there's promise in training for godliness and and growing in godliness 
benefit now or value now and for the life to come. And isn't that a valuable consideration for us to ask, what are you doing in this life that is valuable physically and spiritually now and for all eternity? And don't miss last week's sermon to be like, oh, it's right. I'm going to cut out anything that I enjoy. I just, he already argued against that. Keep this in context. Training to be godly also involves toil and striving, he says. Verse 10, for to this end, we toil and strive. We'll make more connections in a little bit later. Training to be godly will not happen automatically, and it isn't going to be easy. Paul describes here his own ministry, not just in him seeking to train to be godly himself, but seeking to train others to be godly. See, that's, he saw it as a primary pastoral priority for him to train to be godly and to train others to be godly. And as he thinks about that effort that he was pursuing, he recognizes and uses two terms to describe the effort and difficulty of this. And it is toil and strive. Toil. And shows the type of exertion and the effort involved. And it speaks of hard work physically, mentally, spiritually. Have you ever struggled to resist against your flesh? Like maybe it's just that, that really brilliant response that you know would put whoever in their place. And you also know very clearly this would be wrong. And you're just really want to say this, really sinful, really shouldn't do it, right? Do you feel that battle? There could be other battles of that as well. I hope that you've experienced the struggle against your flesh. If you're like, no, I've never had, never had any problems sinning. It's always really easy. So we need to talk uh, because the presence of the spirit inside of a believer brings that struggle, that conflict. Galatians, Romans talk about these type of things. Resisting against these things can be really hard simultaneously wanting to do what's right. That's the spirit. While also really wanting to sin. That's the flesh. That's the conflict. The New Testament often speaks in battle-like language. So we shouldn't expect it to be easy. And Paul certainly gives us examples of it not being easy. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. It wasn't me. It was the grace of God that was with me. But I worked at this. It was difficult. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, he describes some of the difficulties that he encountered. He says, to the present hour, we, Paul as an apostle, those who are his ministry assistants, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Is it going to be easy? Is it going to be glorious training to be godly? One day. Probably not this day. That day. All his toil for himself and others had a good goal. Like he told the Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. He said, Christ we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, training toward godliness. And he says, for this... I toil, struggling 
with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And that gets us to toil. What about striving? Striving could be talking about the reproach or insult that Paul suffered at the hands of unbelievers and believers while toiling for the sake of the gospel. Could be like losing aspects of reputation and and suffering insult. Or it could be a word that describes the agonizing suffering that he went through constantly for the sake of the gospel. It was agonizing work. It was hard and it was unpleasant. You'd be like, why didn't you pull away from that? Well, he's going to get to what that goal was and how he, how he endured. What kind of agonizing suffering did Paul go through for the sake of the gospel? Second Corinthians talks about this. I wonder if you're familiar with this passage. Second Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 29. Uh, in the Corinthians, some, some extra special super apostles were saying like, oh, Paul, he's not even an apostle. Or if he is, he's like this lower apostle. Where are the real apostles? And this wasn't Peter or James or John or Andrew. It was these others that were trying to exalt themselves into positions of authority. And they did that by trying to step on Paul. And so he writes them to defend his apostolic authority. And so you'd expect him to defend it by being like, look how great I am, all the messages I've preached, all the wonderful miracles that I've done. Look at how wonderful I am. And he says, well, let me go ahead and boast a little bit. 2 Corinthians 11, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And he says, I'm talking like a madman. But let me tell you how I'm a better apostle. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, Countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That story is recorded in Acts. They thought they had killed him, so they left him for dead, but he wasn't. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, the Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city. This is like a Dr. Seuss thing. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from other things... There's a daily pressure on, my, of, of, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak among all of the believers that he knew? Who, who is weak and struggling and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? What could possibly make this kind of toiling and striving worth it to Paul or Timothy or any other believer? If training to be godly for ourselves or for others is this hard and this potentially miserable, why would anybody want to do it? Paul gives us a clear and proper goal, laying it in front of us. Why would we train to be godly? Or how do we train to be godly? Having a clear and proper goal. And that goal is the life to come. Training to be godly holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's likely, he said this a couple times, maybe like, that sounds familiar. He says at the beginning of chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy. He says it a few other times in first, I think in 2 Timothy as well. So probably something that other people said, a common phrase. And the common phrase is likely what he recorded in verse 8. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. 
maybe including the as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul wholeheartedly agrees with this saying. It is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. Why? Why is it why is it so important for us to recognize that training in godliness holds promise for the life to come? It is to this end. Verse 10 is connecting us back to verse 8. To this end, what end? The goal, the finish line, the prize. The prize that is eternity, the life to come. That's what he's pushing toward. It's kind of like, because I think about every person that I know or meet or could know or could meet, and I think about the destination that they're running toward. I have to say, are they heading toward life or are they heading toward death? And I'm going to do whatever possible, you know, stone me, shipwreck me, starve me. Life for me and for you is worth it. To this end, I will toil and strive. He's willing to starve and freeze and get stoned and fight tooth and nail against false teachers, not just for his own training in godliness, but for the training of other people in godliness because there is a life to come. This life is not all that there is. This life is not all that there is. There is now and there is eternity. And this now is like the steam that comes out, the breath that you can see on a cold morning here for a little while and then vanishes away and then forever begins. Which are we going to live for? We can train and suffer and toil and strive now. Indeed, we must, and we must for one simple reason, we aren't where we're going yet. You aren't where you are going yet. But you're going there. Isn't it interesting Paul wrote in the previous paragraph that we are to gratefully enjoy God's good gifts here and now during our lives in a fallen world, yet now he is instructing Timothy to look forward to the life to come and to endure the reality of suffering with hope set on what the Bible refers to as a new or renewed earth. In one sense, we want to say, which is it, Paul? (laughs) Are we supposed to gratefully enjoy things now and just and be here, or are we supposed to be there and, and in the future? Are we supposed to be thinking about earth now or the renewed earth then? Is it the life to come or the life now? And I think that tension is how we are supposed to be living. That's the balance of the Christian life. You know, we gratefully enjoy God's good gifts to help us better love God and worship God and enjoy God growing in godliness, but we never worship the gifts. Whether the gifts come or go, we remain faithful in our worship and in our submission to God. If having good things in this life or losing good things in this life keep us from God, then we are certainly not 
enjoying them gratefully or worshipfully, right? Having it is different than clinging to it, different than demanding it. If we can't stand to have, to not have something, if we can't stand to have something taken away from us, trying to hold God or ourselves hostage against God, I have to have this or else, right? Those type of ultimatums then, like we talked about in training hour today, we're talking about idolatry, right? You can live without anyone or anything other than God. That's, that's the truth. That's what Jesus was trying to get across. It's like, if you don't love if you don't hate everyone and everything else in comparison to loving me, then you're not worthy of me. And it's just like, whoa, that's really, that's really strong. Take, yeah, but that's the value judgment. Nothing compares to the significance and value of knowing Christ. Paul said that, right? Take my reputation, take my resume, take everything good that I've done and just throw it in the garbage because I want to have Christ live or die. I just want, to, I want Jesus. And our attitudes must be the same way. So do we, do we have things that we are gratefully enjoying or are we worshiping things? You know, how often have believers for thousands of years repeated the words of Job? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He says that as a statement. I say that more as a prayer, right? You have given, you have taken, oh, Help me to submit to you in this. Help me to trust you in these things, to bless your name, not to love you for your gifts, but to love you through your gifts or without your gifts because you are the treasure. You are the gift, the pearl of great price like the story Jesus gave. How do we train to be godly? This kind of just builds right off of that. It's having eyes fixed on God, our hope set on the living God. See, our goal of the life to come is not merely the joy of a place. Paul speaks of hope. I mentioned this before. We really have a bad definition of hope in our lives, in our culture, in our world. Kind of that, that word, kind of like love or faith, right? The word has just shrunk to, or really shifted to mean something completely different. So we don't hope as some sort of an escapist wish. Ah, oh, once I get out of here, everything will be okay. You know, biblical hope is not a wish upon a star. It is sturdy confidence that a promise that has been made will absolutely be kept because the one who promised is reliable. The one who promised is faithful. That's what hope is biblically, a sturdy confidence that a promise that has been made will absolutely be kept because the promise maker is faithful to keep his promises. So our hope is set on him, as Paul says. We have our hope set on the living God. That's who we hope in. See, it's not even just what do we hope in or what do we hope for. It's who do we hope in? Who is the grounds for that confident, sturdy expectation? The living God. Not the God who was, but the God who is. One who is alive and living permanently and perfectly and eternally. And that living God is our savior. The savior, not just for Jews, it's not just for somebody else, but for all kinds of people like we talked about in chapter two. The savior for all people, the message shared to everyone. 
And he is the actual savior for those who believe, those for whom he suffered and died. Training to be godly has to do with that type of intake, has to do with an effort, has to do with our our gaze being set, not on ourselves, not on this life, not on that life, but on God. God who isn't just there then, but is with us now. And then will come back for us. We talked about godliness, it's reverent love for God. Starts on the inside, transforms us. Transforms us as as God works in us and we work and God's wor- God works and we work and God works and we work, right? He works in you both to will and to work. So work, right? It's like, who is it? Yes. Just strive prayerfully toward godliness. It's not just you. Oh, so I don't do anything. No. <laughs> strive, toil, train. Another one of those balanced things. But how is training to be godly a pastoral priority? That's where he started. That's what Paul's trying to communicate here. He's not just talking to every believer saying, hey, you and you and you and you and you, train to be godly. If you've been like, well, Paul, do you want every believer to train to be godly? You'd be like, of course I do. But here he's not communicating that to believers. He's communicating that to somebody in an elder pastoral-like capacity. See, it's that primary pastoral priority. When an elder trains himself to be godly, first of all, he should already have been trained in godliness, already be growing in that, or he's disqualified. That as he does that, he will be demonstrating to the people both what training toward godliness looks like and what goal they are to be pursuing. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Don't just be like me as if I'm your savior. Oh, if I'm your savior, I only have pity for you. I just do a lousy job at that. But if we come together to point each other to the savior, right? He is the one that we follow. But as others have grown in maturity and are following, we follow each other. And then we also demonstrate faith and repentance, growing in godliness together. So an elder training himself to be godly demonstrates this to the people, the, the training itself and the goal. You know, that's, that's not limited to just pastors and elders. That's, that's sort of the, the smallest aspect of context here. But isn't that true kind of in every other sphere of life? I mean, fathers, are you just instructing in godliness or are you demonstrating your own training in godliness? It's like, hey, you all need to follow Jesus, but I'm, but I'm not. <laughs> no, take, take uh, stock of yourself first. Mothers, same, same thing. You're, you're giving instruction in the word, but you're also demonstrating that growing in godliness. You know, in your workplace or training hour classes or aspects of care groups or in your neighborhood or to your family, right? We're all to be training in godliness as we communicate the need for others to train in godliness. Training in godliness, encouraging training in godliness in others, this is faithful gospel ministry. If you put these things, if you communicate this, verse six, before the brothers and sisters, then you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. A faithful biblical pastor or elder will be trained in godliness, demonstrating that, and also will say to the body, train to be godly. Train to be godly.
John Calvin said, let us therefore remember, it is the highest honor of a godly pastor to be reckoned a good servant of Christ. So he ought to aim at nothing else during his whole ministry. For whoever has any other object in view will have it in his power to obtain applause from men, but will not please God. Accordingly, that we may not be deprived of so great a blessing, let us learn to seek nothing else and to account nothing so valuable and to treat everything as worthless in comparison of this single object, godliness. Reverent love for God that we are to be pursuing. That's how godliness is to be. Training to be godly is a pastoral priority. Quick conclusion, very quick conclusion. Two points. You need to train to be godly. Right? Not in order to become a Christian, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be engaged in training in godliness. Prayerfully. Train for it harder than an Olympic athlete, relying on God's mighty strength to work in and through you. And then the second point is pray for your elders. We are to be trained and training in godliness. Pray that we would train ourselves and that we would be faithful to train you. Before we come to the table, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you that you are at work in us to transform us, to make us more like Christ, that we might be more to the praise of your glory. It's not about us, it's about you. Please keep that at the forefront of our minds, the forefront of our hearts, we don't love you first. We love because you first loved us. And so we give you thanks. Please continue to, to transform us and, and increase our love. May we love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. May that, that love then be demonstrated outwardly. May we train to be godly. May we encourage others, encourage each other to train in godliness. And may you be pleased with each of these things, we pray. Amen. Come to the, we're going to come to the table here. Um, visible words, the sacraments have been called, or, or uh, truth that you can hold and taste. Reading a book pointing to that. It's not just like an accessory thing. This book that I was reading, um, looking forward to reading more of it, pushing us to that. This is like, would people in your church notice first if you stopped singing or stopped serving the table? And interesting. But yet aren't they both commanded as means of God's grace to us? Is this just a thing? Or is Christ coming and saying, it's like, yeah, you believe, grow in your belief, right? John 6, he said, and I think it, it's not quite table, but it kind of gets to that. It's like, if you don't eat of me and drink of me, you have no part of me. And he drives us to the table to be like, you, you come because it's, it's me. I am your spiritual life. So we come, we see bread, we see the cup, and we say, Christ has given himself for me. And I take, I take of him as he has invited me and commanded me to do that. And it's not, it's not mystical, not like, oh, I feel grace as I taste the bread. It's received by faith. And so while you're waiting to come, pray. 
think about the gospel. Christ's body, his human nature, right? He suffered for us. He suffered to the point of death. He was offered as a sacrifice. His blood was shed, right? Meditate on these things. Confess not just here are the bad things that I've done that would make me unworthy to come. You're not worthy to come. That's the whole point. But think on, like, wow, you know, what, way, what, what aspects of my own self-righteousness do I need to confess? Not like, I yelled at my wife, I did this, I did this. Let me clear out my sin accounts, now I'm worthy to come, right? In whatever ways you think you're worthy to come, confess that. Because Christ died to remove us from self-righteousness. But this is also part of training to be godly, right? Nourished on the truth of Christ. What better picture to do this? It's like, what does nourishment look like spiritually? It looks like coming to the table of the Lord. Say, here's my bread, you know, my body, here's my blood. Right, so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to come. The Lord invites you to come. Christ, it's, it's, so we talk about communion. We think of, sometimes it's like, oh, it's communing with each other. But it's not. It's us communing with Christ because it's his table, not our table. His body, not ours. His blood, right? So think of Christ. Come to receive of him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then um, you need to receive him spiritually before you can celebrate that, before it can point you to those gospel promises. So we just ask you to stay in your seat. But in a minute, the deacons will dismiss and come forward, receive the elements, return to your seat, and then we will um, we'll partake together. Let me give thanks uh, before we do so. Father, thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, our Savior, uh, and his perfect life ending in a sacrificial death. He was an acceptable sacrifice before you on our behalf. He's a savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Thank you for including us in your marvelous plan of redemption. Please do increase our faith. Holy Spirit, teach us as we come to your table this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.